before we read the scripture from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4, let us first read the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism. Responsively, what is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? Let us ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that in your goodness and mercy, in the riches of your love for us, you have given unto us your Son, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, in one person, to be our mediator, our Savior, Redeemer, and our intercessor on high. In his name and For the sake of his glory, we would ask the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us afresh. Help us now to receive your word for what it is, your word of truth, that we might be built up in faith, that we might be more deeply convicted of our sin, that we might be more thoroughly sanctified and and consecrated as your people so that we might more truly and fully and joyfully, with thanksgiving, live as your redeemed people in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Of God it is written. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan showed us that the first and the tenth commandments are like bookends, which uphold all of the commandments in between. Everything, if you, if you imagine, if you visualize the first commandment being on top, everything else, you shall have no other gods before me, every other commandment flows from that. And in fact, any breaking of any of the other commandments is automatically and by definition a breaking of the first commandment because the breaking of any of the other commandments is in some form or fashion a following after of another God. And he showed us that the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, is the other bookend and it's, it, it underlies each of the other commandments because it shows us our desires, the affections of our hearts, our inclinations. And so when we we violate any of the other commandments, this 10th commandment, you shall not covet, really shows us the sin that resides within, the invisible sin that resides within and gives rise to the actual sin of a violation of one or the other of the Commandments. And so, two weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan encouraged us to examine our hearts, our desires, our affections, so that we all might really better understand the depth and the seriousness and the power of the sin of covetousness within us. And as a good physician of the soul, he also challenged us to identify the habits, literally the practical and daily habits which incline us toward some form of covetousness. Identify them and and begin to root them out of our lives. For example, such as... such as not looking at social media the first thing in the morning and comparing our lives to someone else's. Or not getting trapped on an unceasing treadmill of work for the sake of buying things to the point of exhaustion so that all that we have the energy for is to turn on the TV and watch commercials which incline us to more covetousness. Ceaseless cycle. He also warned us about the habits of consumerism. Our economic environment is all about more and more and more and more and bigger and bigger and better and better and newer and on and on and on it goes. That's the spiritual and moral danger. The very real result can be and often is that 
even for those of us who have more than enough, and that includes a lot of us, even for those of us who have more than enough, enough is never enough. Some nice people, some very, very nice people, socially well-adjusted people, otherwise outwardly moral people actually affirm and live by that creed. That's a creed. Enough is never enough. And so while enjoying all the material benefits of the free enterprise system, they have become spiritual slaves captured by covetousness. Contrast that creed of covetousness, enough is never enough, with this statement, quote, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you know who said that? Jesus said that. And he said it in Luke 12, 15. He said it with this sentence, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. <laughs> now, if he said that to a bunch of poor first century fishermen, do you think it might apply to us? So Pastor Jonathan called us to spiritual warfare against the habits of the heart which incline us toward covetousness. Today, I want us to turn our attention to the positive spiritual disciplines, the positive habits of the heart which will promote a positive disposition within us as an antidote to covetousness. In his first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul gave both a warning and a positive encouragement. He wrote to Timothy, Godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How does that play <laughs> in contemporary American culture? If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Give us this day our daily bread. Paul continues in that same passage with this warning. Those who desire to be rich. Now the key, there, the desire to be rich, lust to be rich, crave to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many things. So pay attention to the language and the warning. Desire to be rich. Harmful desires. The love of money. 
You see, it's speaking of covetousness, that insatiable drive and inclination of of the inmost being. And you know, when the scripture speaks of love of money, it doesn't, it doesn't picture, you know, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge sitting around and just sort of kissing his coins. That's not the love of money. The love of, how do you know if you love money? It, it, you love money if you have a greater sense of security, if you have more of it, right? You trust in it. You love it. You trust it. You look for your happiness to it. it de- your life depends on money and the amount you have. That's love of money. And it's a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So note that in that passage, Paul contrasts the love of money, covetousness, that craving for it with contentment. He uses the word twice there. And likewise then in Hebrews chapter 13, 5, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. The King James Version says, keep your life free from covetousness and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which means that we ought to look to God's place in our life instead of to money's place in our life. So we learn from the scripture that contentment is the opposite or the antidote to covetousness. Now, the children's first catechism, I think, gets it exactly right. The children's first catechism. What does the 10th commandment teach you? To be content with whatever God chooses to give me. What a profound answer to be content with the providence of God. One more time. What does the 10th commandment teach you? To be content with whatever God chooses to give me. Doesn't that put it in perspective? Doesn't that put it into perspective? To be content with whatever the almighty, infinite, eternal all-wise, all-knowing creator who loves me and sent his son to redeem me to be content with whatever he chooses to give me. Now, I know at least one adult, and I, I know him pretty well, who would benefit by meditating on that statement throughout the day, every day. Maybe you know someone too. Contentment is the positive opposite of covetousness. Contentment is the positive opposite of covetousness. Now, the letter to the Philippians is one of Paul's most devotionally uplifting letters because it is characterized by gratitude, joy, peace. There are lots of favorite memory verses in Philippians precisely because It's so happy, it reverberates with gratitude, peace, and joy. It's so positive, it's so encouraging. Well, what we might forget is that when he wrote it, Paul was imprisoned, most likely in Rome, and was anticipating his death by execution. And yet this letter overflows with gratitude, peace, and joy. And as Paul comes near to the conclusion of his letter, 
in which his gratitude, peace, and joy uh, come more and more to the forefront in chapter 4, he tells us something about the key to his spiritual life. He writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now listen carefully. The Apostle Paul wrote about himself, I have learned, I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I have learned. I have learned. The point? The Apostle Paul had to learn to be content in whatever situation. And so do we. Contentment is a learned disposition. Contentment is a learned orientation toward life. Contentment is a learned spiritual discipline. You see, the Apostle Paul didn't just get zapped by Jesus and immediately become perfectly sanctified by the Holy Spirit so that he, presto, Bingo, automatically became a contented person. No, he had to learn to be content in every situation. And so do we. And for the Apostle Paul, it wasn't an easy lesson to learn. Now, if you think about it, if you know his story... As a young man, Saul of Tarsus had a very promising life, a very well-to-do and secure, comfortable life. But what about his life as an apostle of Jesus Christ? He tells us in 2 Corinthians that it looked like this, imprisonments with countless beatings, Often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure." When he wrote that, he wasn't whining or asking for pity. He was simply testifying that having Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord and being in the service of Jesus Christ was worth it, all of that. And those were the kinds of experiences through which the Apostle Paul learned to be content in whatever situation.
Well, what do we do to learn contentment in situations such as that? Well, for example, now think about the story of Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi, which is recorded in Acts 16. They preached the gospel there, and as a result, they were stripped, beaten, thrown into prison with their feet in the stocks. So what did they do? What would you do? What they did was they prayed and sang hymns to God. Now the point is they were really in a bad situation. They They were suffering a really bad set of circumstances. Nobody would want to be in those circumstances. What did they do? They prayed and sang hymns to God. Now, what do you do when your life isn't what you want it to be? I'm not suggesting that we're supposed to be happy when we're in a bad situation. Paul and Silas were not particularly happy about having been stripped, beaten, and thrown into prison. But the point is, what did they do in those circumstances? They prayed and sang hymns to the true and living God. They worshiped God. I have learned to be content. They worshiped God. They called upon him. They entrusted themselves to him. They affirmed their faith in him. They entered into spiritual communion with him. And I would suggest to you that that was one particular specific example of one of the practical ways in which the apostle Paul learned in whatever situation he was to be content. He learned in that situation how to be brought low and still trust in Jesus. That's an example of how Paul learned the secret of facing hunger and need with faith in Christ. Now, I hope that none of you ever have to learn to be content in those kinds of circumstances. But you know, even in 21st century America, we do with all of our creature comforts, We do experience disappointments and hardships and adversities and injustices. We find ourselves in serious situations which are not to our liking and which we would never choose for ourselves. This is life in a fallen world. And so we have a choice to learn to be content, to learn the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Or to be bitter, resentful, ungrateful, self-pitying, envious, and covetous of another's well-being. When we look at the broader context in Philippians 4, we see some other practical hints about how to learn to be content, whatever our situation. For example, the section begins with these words, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Now this is an exhortation for us to keep our hearts focused and centered upon the goodness and the mercy and the power of the Lord and his presence with us wherever we are in whatever situation we find ourselves. When we rejoice in the Lord, we remind ourselves that no matter our circumstances, the Lord is with us. He will never forsake us. He rules over all and not even death can separate us from his love. 
When we focus our hearts and minds on who the Lord is, what he has done for us, what he has promised us, rejoicing in him helps us to be content even in our adverse situations. Another clue to learning to be content comes in verses 6 and 7, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety, worry, fretfulness surely is an enemy of contentment. It arises when we lose sight of the fact or fail to believe that our sovereign God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purposes. Anxiety arises when we think that God has somehow forgotten us, does not care about us, in our situation. Fretful anxiety can lead to a covetous attitude as we compare our situation to that of others. But God's Word counsels us to replace anxiety with trust in God and invites us, invites us, indeed really commands us to make our needs known to God in prayer with thanksgiving. Come to God. Speak to him and give thanks. Prayerful thanksgiving, the giving of thanks for specific enumerated blessings. Count your blessings, everyone, name them one by one. It's one of the best antidotes to covetousness that there is. Now, you know, these days, secular counselors and new age gurus Advise us to keep a gratitude journal in which we're to write down all of the things that we're thankful for. Feeling bad, feeling sad, got the blues. Get your gratitude journal out. Just start writing down everything you're thankful for. Now look, if a secular psychologist or a new age guru can teach us that, come on, right? God's word spoke it long ago. But, you know, in modern secularism or in New Age spirituality, there's a problem. And that is, there's really no one to whom to give thanks. Have you ever thought about that? But we have a Father in heaven who loves us, who cares for us, who's promised to provide our needs, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who's given his only begotten Son, so that we might be adopted as his children and inherit the riches of glory. (laughs) And so the life of the true Christian is first of all the life of gratitude. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. When we focus our hearts on all of God's blessings, and brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, first of all, to focus on the spiritual blessings in Christ. Are you a Christian? Do you know that Jesus loved you, loves you? Jesus loves even you. Are you a Christian? Do you love him? Do you love him because he loves you? Give thanks for your regeneration, your new birth into life everlasting, the forgiveness of your sins. You're forgiven. 
on the basis of the blood of Christ who died for you. Give thanks for your reconciliation with God and your justification before the bar of his justice. Am I really right with God? If you're in Christ, you are. And the strengthening and sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, your adoption as his very own son and daughter in Christ and the fellowship of the church and and the hope of glory... The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed to us. Give thanks. And then the material blessings, especially the degree to which all of us enjoy. We ask God, God promises to give us our daily bread and my goodness, look around and see what he's really given us. And what do we have that we've not received? Give thanks. But you see, when our hearts are full of gratitude, there is less and less room for covetousness and more and more room for contentment. When we practice the spiritual discipline of thinking about our blessings, giving thanks for all our blessings, we're much less inclined to covet the blessings of others. Do you practice the discipline of an attitude of gratitude? Do you think about what you do have instead of what you don't have? Does your mind lead you in the direction of covetousness or contentment? When we practice the discipline of humble prayer, making our requests known to God, trusting in his goodness to provide for all we need, with thanksgiving for all he's given to us, then the scripture says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And when the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, then the demon of discontentment and covetousness will be cast out. Pray, trust, give thanks. Experience the peace of God which guards your heart and mind from covetousness and which nurtures contentment. Further in the passage, verse 19, Paul gives us the assurance, which really is the ultimate foundation for genuine contentment, the knowledge of God's faithful care for our lives. Now, the letter to the Philippians is a thank you letter for their financial support of his missionary endeavors, and they had recently sent a gift to him to encourage and support him while he was in prison and meet some of his material needs there. But in his thank you reply, he assures them, because they were very poor, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians had sent a special gift to support Paul, and he'd written to thank them. But as he did so, he encouraged them with this promise that God would never let them down. God would always be their support. He would supply their every need out of his riches in glory. And that's really the secret to contentment. When we learn that God is enough, that's the question for you and for me today. Is God enough? Is God enough for our contentment? Can we say with David, as we shall sing in a moment, The Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. Can we say with the psalmist, 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion. He is what I need. He is my everything. Can you sing with the psalmist, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Can we say with the psalmist, as he's looking around at the rich and high and mighty, can we say with the psalmist, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Your presence in my life brings me more joy than all the stuff this world can provide. Can we say it? Where does that contentment come from? Brothers and sisters, ultimately it must come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God gave us his only begotten son to redeem us from our sins and to bring us into his everlasting kingdom, he gave us everything. Do you realize that? He gave us everything. Jesus, God's eternal son, is the heir of all that God has. And guess what? Guess what? In union with Christ, we are the adopted children of God together with Jesus, his son. And we are co-heirs with Christ. That's what the Bible says in Romans 8. Co-heirs together with Christ. We're going to share the glory of God's everlasting kingdom. Now, never forget. Don't ever forget that if indeed you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if that's who you are, then you have, says the scripture, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for you in heaven. Put all the world's riches in comparison to that because you can't take any of it with you. And remember how it is that such an inheritance would come to you. Remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That by his poverty you might become rich. Do you know how rich you are? Infinitely rich. Because although the world and all its riches will fade away, the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ is forever. Take your choice. Let us be content to have him as our Savior. Let us be content to have him at our side. Let us be content with the riches of his grace lavished upon us. Let us be content in the knowledge that our God is with us and our God is enough forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. To the glory of his name, amen. Father, we thank you for the wonders of your love, the riches of your grace, and your care for us such that you would speak to us and give us light 
by which to live in this world through your word. So help us to follow Jesus. Help us to find our all in all in him. To the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, please stand as we affirm our faith, the Philippian Creed. And although we, we affirm this creed from Scripture, Philippians 2, quite often I want you, I want you to pay attention in, in light of the sermon at the structure of this creed, and I want you to see how this creed shows us, tells us, teaches us what Christ gave up in order to give us everything. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, though it was Oh,